Go ahead and be seated. Tonight we're going to take a look at Joy to the World. And if you want to look on at the lyrics and follow along during our discussion, but you haven't found them yet, you can turn to page 6 in your bulletin. Now a few minutes ago I said that the order of our songs wasn't accidental, it wasn't random. They're meant to move us through an experience, the way we've put them together. In our first week together, Colin reminded us that different songs have different uses and functions. And so if you sort of stack up the functions of our songs this evening in order, they're meant to move you through a story. Not the story of the nativity so much as our story as the church. So the first week the angels meet us, and we're given a song. Like we've said already, it's an announcement, it's a summons, so we're called to the stable. Then last week, we'd already made it to the stable, but when we get there, we're full of wonder. We don't know what to make of any of this. And so the song that we're given catechizes us. As Chad told us last week, very rightly, the only way you really learn who Jesus is is through worship. And so now we come and we're given another song third song, but what's left? We've been called. We've been instructed. What's left for this song to do with us? Answering the question is going to be a little more difficult than just asking why the original hymn writer composed it. Because we don't sing it the way he intended at all. There's some debate over how much of the song Isaac Watts originally wrote. But there are early versions, several early versions, that let us know that he probably wrote all four verses that we use today. There have been a few changes to words and phrases, some updating. But overall, he wrote this poem. Back in 1719, he published a collection of psalms, the Psalms of David. But what he did with them was very interesting. He made these sort of theological paraphrases. He decided that he would take the psalms and make them more modern English poetry. And in doing it, he wouldn't just change the way they rhyme and the way the words fit together, but he would actually make theological interpretive moves so that they were more explicitly Christ-centered. And so he gave us these psalms, and this song, Joy to the World, is his adaptation of Psalm 98. Except that he never meant it to be a Christmas song. The original title was Joy to the World, The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. He wasn't thinking of Christ's first advent at all, his first coming. He was thinking of his second. When Isaac Watts sat down to write these words, he didn't picture a manger full of infant helplessness. He pictured a final, strong redeemer, too big for creation to contain. And so that's what he wrote. Knowing that changes the way the words sit in our throat a little bit. That's why the sins and sorrows wither. That's why the thorns are banished. What he wanted you to do was imagine that everything you've ever hoped for in the gospel is finally here. When you you sing it, it's supposed to be like we don't say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, anymore, because he's already come back. That's what Watts wanted. But, in the words of another prominent songwriter, you can't always get what you want. So about a century later, a Presbyterian minister and musician, a guy by the name of Lowell Mason, put the verses to a tune that he created in honor of Handel. 
Mason loved Handel. He loved Handel's Messiah, so he stole and borrowed and drew heavily from phrases and the sounds of Handel's Messiah. And so, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but it grew very rapidly in its prominence and use and popularity, and most especially as a Christmas piece. Over time, it became the traditional piece that you would end a Christmas Mass or a Christmas worship service on, especially in England. Not just the Church of England, but also in Scottish churches and Presbyterian churches. That's where the whole service would build and then end in Britain. At New St. Peter's, we sort of stumbled into this on our own. Over the last several years, Rich has put this song at the end of our Christmas liturgies and Christmas Eve liturgies, not because we knew anything about the tradition of it, but just because the final eradication of the curse seems like a very fitting place to end Christmas worship. And it turned out great minds think alike, and churches in the UK have done it for a little more than a century. Now, there are two things I find very interesting about the way the church has picked up and used this hymn. The first, whether it was ever intended this way or not, is that there's a whole sermon being preached when the church takes a hymn about Christ's return and uses it to celebrate his incarnation. You and I may have never meant it this way before, but tonight when we sing it at the end, remember that whatever Jesus is going to do with his creation to make it new in the end, he's already doing, he's already working in his people as he starts making us new now. Whether it was intended or not, that's what we should hear when we sing it. And then second, the formal pieces of how it's sung. We probably won't pick any of these up, but some of its formal uses, some of the liturgical, dramatic pieces that go with it actually should shape the way it functions for us. In many churches through the 19th and 20th century in England, you didn't sing this song in your seats. This is a song that's sung while you leave. So sometimes the choir would sing it over you while the congregation made its way out of the doors. And in some churches, even to this day, the people sing it. They start singing it when they stand up and walk out. And they sing it on the way to their cars or as they walk back to their houses. That's perfect. That's what it's meant to do. The celebration isn't just for us in here. The words of the song make it very clear that this celebration is for the world. The grace of the incarnation isn't confined to this space inside this room. And so our first song called us to come and see the Savior. Our second song trained us to see and know what kind of Savior He would be. But this third song, after we've been called and after we've been trained, this third song sends us to go and declare the good news to the world that He came to save. Jesus came to rescue and gather His church in the world, and He's not through gathering yet. In his mysterious providence, he uses weak things like our declarative celebration to do it. I don't know how much this example will resonate with you. I don't know if you share any of my baggage in this. But I have been a part of far too many bad Christmas Eve services that end with a candle lighting. And so the way the service runs, everyone lights candles in the congregation during some instrumental piece. No words are sung. And the music fades out and everyone leaves in silence. 
very pretty. It's poignant. But that has absolutely nothing to do with the incarnation. The incarnation is Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, and you don't celebrate that with silence. There, don't get me wrong, there are places that we use liturgical silence. Like at the end of our Monday Thursday service, we walk out in silence. Because in that service, we're remembering the way the disciples ran and hid in fear. But when your king returns, you don't celebrate that with silence at all. When your king comes back and he defeats all of your oppressors, you don't hold your tongue, you sing about it. Not with a shy, inside voice, but at the top of your lungs, like you really have good news to declare. Jesus gives us this proclamation He gives us this good news, and this is the song that he gives us to sing. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let men employ songs for greetings. Let fields and hillsides join with praise of their own. You're supposed to leave here and sing the good news that he has come and that he is coming. And that what he means to do is kill every last thorn that pierces and chokes his creation. That's the good news, not just in here, but out there. That's what you're supposed to do with it. That's why the song is put in our mouths. The song that you sing and the good news that you have been given to proclaim is that Jesus doesn't just come to remove the curse. The song says it much stronger and much better than that. He's coming to replace it. He's coming to make his blessings flow everywhere he finds it. So no one is too far outside of our doors. And there's nothing too far deep inside of us that Jesus can't reach it with his healing grace. He comes to make his blessings flow as far and as deep as the curse is found. And that's what you should sing tonight on the way to your car in the parking lot. You should sing that to friends and family and neighbors who have never heard or maybe never believed that that's what Jesus intends to do with you and with his creation. You should sing that to yourself when you find the curse at work in your home or at work in your heart. Jesus isn't embarrassed by any of those things. The song is right. Jesus is looking for those things because when he finds them, he means to replace them. That's where he wants to make his blessings flow. The good news that we sing is not that Jesus came with a handful of sedatives to make a skeptic's heart bored and to make your sin a little sleepier and less effective. He didn't come to make your friends' unbelief cordial. He didn't come to change out your temper for apathy. And he didn't come to take away your hatred for your spouse and give you some acceptable level of tolerance. That's not what Jesus has come to do at all. He came to reverse these things. Jesus came to turn abuse into cultivation, oppression into nurturing, hatred into affection, rage into gentleness, and cold disbelief into white-hot, unstoppable faith in you, and in his lost elect outside of our doors. We live with such low expectations of the gospel so much of the time 
I don't know if I can say this too many times for your sake or for mine, but Jesus didn't come to turn your sin into neutrality. He didn't come to make you spiritual Switzerland. He came to track down the curse, to hunt down your sin and mine, all of its appeal and all of its effects, and he wouldn't be satisfied just to kill it. He means to crowd out its corpse with his goodness. That's why in the new creation there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more thorns and curse. There's no room left for them. Jesus and his gospel and his goodness have overwhelmed the world and crowded them out. All that's left is him, his goodness, his righteousness, his beauty, and our being washed in it and enjoying him in it. No one is so far outside our doors, and there's nothing so deep inside of us that Jesus can't reach it with his healing grace. The good news of the song we sing is that he comes to make his blessings flow all the way as far as the curse is found. Amen.